0: Hey Vince McMahon,
1: it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Oh no, give me a break. Oh, brother.
0: Welcome to the jungle. We got fun and games. We also have the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Guns and Roses for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Or if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone and Wicked Good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to get on our Facebook group. Just uh, search Stick to Wrestling, and I'll let you get into the group. Also, you can follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam, and you've got the guy Moondog Maine is fighting with a chair in his avatar. That's the guy you want to follow. Before I get rolling with this week's show, a couple of things. Uh, Number one, I want to encourage everyone, please, everyone likes a good comeback story in sports, right? Well, the coronavirus comeback story is not a good story. Getting vaccinated is easy, free, and it's safe. And if I can get one person who listens to me to say, all right, I'll finally get this done, I will have done my good deed. Let me see, we're going to do part two of Randy and I's trip to Baltimore, The Great American Bash. This is going to be a really, really good show, one of the top 10% of the shows that we've done. I'm very happy with this show. It was great. Randy and I, this is a little bit of a downer. When we go to record, sometimes we talk off the air before or after the show, and Randy made a really good point off the air. He said he watched this show for the first time in 30 years, and he was detached from it. He was like, okay, I'm not mad about this stuff anymore, and he, Looked at it through, he felt a more objective eye than we did 30 years ago. My reaction was completely different. It got me mad again. (laughs) I mean, I I just remember I'd forgotten about this, but sitting in my seat in Baltimore and just figuring out that Dusty Rhodes was going for everything with Dustin Rhodes, making Dustin the number one guy in WCW. I knew he was going to try to make Dustin a big star, but I didn't think he was going to try to make him the number one guy right away. So it was kind of different that how Randy and I reacted differently to watching the show again. Like me being me, I got, it got me mad. But anyway, one other thing, um, this is coming out on Friday. On Monday, Paul Orndorff passed away after a long illness. Uh, we wish his family all the best next week. We are going to have a tribute show for Paul Orndorff and hopefully it will be a unique kind of tribute show, It'll Be something different than everyone else did. I mean, a week from today, like where we might get, you might have already heard all of the Paul Orndorff tributes that you need to hear, but I want you to check this one out. I think it's going to be, like I said, very different from the rest. Here we go with part two of my conversation with Randy Smith. Next up is a cage match between Barry Windham and Lex Luger. WCW World's Heavyweight Championship is vacant. It's the number one contender versus the number two contender. Randy, I believe that that is the way vacant titles should be filled uh, because I've said this before. If you do a tournament, you're asking too many guys to lose. Yeah, uh,
1: the tournament never, never worked out, really. I, I never got into a tournament. I'd rather they do it this way. Just take two of the top guys, put them in there for the belt and give one of them the belt. Yep.
0: It was originally supposed to be Ric Flair against. Lex Luger in a cage match the company wanted Ric Flair to lose the championship to Lex on this night and things didn't exactly go that way Ric Flair you know demanded a contract extension in return for losing the title he made it clear that he didn't want to lose the title to Lex Luger for whatever reason um and you know we always blame Jim Hurd for what went on uh, between he and Ric Flair, and there, believe me, there's plenty of blame to lay on Jim Hurd, but Rick was playing his own games at this point. Like, he said, okay, I'll lose to Sting, which, you know, Sting had just lost the championship earlier that year, so that that's really not possible. And he's like, well, and I'll lose to Barry Windham, who they... Rick didn't think that, you know, they would make Barry Windham champion. Well, Mm -hmm. lo and behold, they are like, okay, Rick, you can lose to Barry Windham at a TV taping before the Great American Bash and we'll put Barry Windham in your place to lose to Luger. So they have this match scheduled and Flair calls in sick. So Rick's (laughs) kind of playing his own game. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I vaguely remember. I mean, there was so much going on at that time with Rick Flair we didn't know from one week to the other, we really didn't know what was going on. And it, it was a really interesting time too, because they're taking the top guy of the company for the last hell, the last ten years pretty much. And what are you gonna do without him? Well, I've said this about
0: Rick Flair before. It was like Rick created not it's not his fault, but like some NWA fans weren't going to accept another wrestler as world's heavyweight champion, as long as Flair was around. Well, on some level, maybe it's better off then if Ric Flair isn't around. I mean, and by the way, I, I, Dave Meltzer told me this, Rick really was sick. He worried himself sick over his contract situation, which I can see Ric Flair doing in real
1: life, but you gotta, you gotta make the town. I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine Ric Flair calling off sick, but uh, hey, if if that's what was reported, that probably what happened.
0: No, that that's exactly what happened, and mm-hmm. it, it it was probably the last straw that got Ric fired because you know he said, okay, I'll lose the belt to Barry Windham, and they kind of called him on his bluff, and mm-hmm. yeah. so it, it was it was originally scheduled for Flair Ric Flair against Lex Luger, but at the end of the day, it was going to be Barry Windham against Lex Luger in this match. Now, we hear in the background the loudest We Want Flair chant of the night that you could hear on on TV. Once again, we're going back to the fans in the arena were just
1: pissed. This is where it came to a head, too. I mean, that chant was deafening. We want flair.
0: I've said it on the show before. Like, you know, television does not give chance. Uh, It it doesn't live up to what they were live. I mean, if you can hear it on TV, it was deafening in the arena.
1: Yeah, and we were all in. I mean, we, everybody, everybody in that arena, same thing. We want Flair. We want Flair, and uh, we did. We we wanted Flair.
0: You know, in a way, I, I was happy in a way that Flair left because I wanted to see him in the WWF against fresh competition. I didn't want to see him against Sting ever again, against Luger ever again, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and it was definitely time for Flair to move on. But the way it happened and what we were given here, we were pissed that he left, though. We, yeah. We, we we wanted him here, but, you know, we wanted him there, too.
0: Yeah, no, I, and it worked to me. It worked out as well as it could have because Flair was in the WWF for about a year and a half. And then he went back to WCW, yep. frankly, where he belonged. Yeah. So we yeah, we he, at least got, got to see time. him. Yeah, we did. All right. And then, well, we'll talk about this on a different show, but they did that wild angle where Ric Flair hits Vince McMahon accidentally. Oh, no, it was Roddy Piper who accidentally hit Vince McMahon with a chair while swinging at Ric Flair. That was great.
1: <laughs> I do remember that, too. They, they did a lot of good things with Flair in that year and a half, two years they had him.
0: They uh, definitely Flair, did. Flair
1: and Savage. I'm, I'm glad I got to see Flair and Savage in WWF, you know, <laughs> back in 92.
0: No, we got to see him against Hogan. We got to see some some really good stuff. Now, Dusty, like I said, I've been bashing Dusty. I'm going to praise him a little bit. This is a tough situation to book. I mean, if you just book Lex Luger to win the title with no whistles and bells, this this match is going to come across as, or, or the finish of the match is going to come across as very flat. But taking a step back, I thought this was a really good match, like not a match of the year candidate, but by far the best match of this night.
1: Yeah, I even have that in uh, best match on
0: the card easily. Yep. All right. And let me see. So Dusty, once again, he's in a tough spot. Luger's the baby face. If you turn him, you are turning him for the fourth or fifth time since he arrived just over four years ago. And that's way too much. But at the same time, if you just deliver a straight you know, Luger win, that's flat. And they didn't want to put Barry Windham at the top of the company at this point. I mean, Dusty, you know, he did what he did. He did a double turn with Luger and Windham, pretty well executed in the middle of the match or at the end of the match. Harley Race and Mr. Mr. Hughes come out and race yells to Luger. Now's the time. And, oh, Luger now knows when to pile drive Barry Windham, and that's the end of the match. I I did not like that finish.
1: No, even for the finish, the the finish confused me because I didn't know, did they turn Windham face? Did they turn Luger heel? Did they turn, is Harley Race going to be a face manager with a face Luger? I didn't know what they were going for there. I didn't know they, you know... I didn't know they were turning Luger heel because I thought they were turning Harley Rose's face uh, to manage him, but I, it ended up they were turning Luger heel there,
0: turning him again. <laughs>
1: again, and by this point, like
0: you know, you could not turn Lex Luger another time, and they did it. I know they kind of had, I don't know, maybe an emergency situation where they had to come up yeah. with some kind of a finish. What I would have done, ho ho ha ha is I would have had Barry Windham pull the upset and just have Lex Luger regain the title at Halloween or have put the title back at
1: st- on Sting at Halloween Havoc. You know, I, I would have given Luger the, I mean, uh, I would have given Windham the belt here too. I, I, I really think Windham should have got the belt here, but he didn't.
0: No, I mean, I, I think that that would have made the, mo- the most sensible, you know, I mean, you have to have, without turning into Vince Russo where everything is a swerve, you know, you have to have some surprises in wrestling. And while they delivered one with Lex Luger turning heel, I I thought that was just not in the best long-term interest of Lex Luger at all.
1: And like you said, they had turned him the, the turn, whether it be a heel or a face turn on Luger, it lost any kind of credibility. When you do it to somebody that often, Oh, he's turning again. You know, what is he now? And it gets to the point where you actually, you know, if somebody mentions his name, you have to think, is he a heel or a face now? I don't even remember.
0: Exactly. They, they, Luger was a, was a dead fish at this point. Yeah. Harley Race and Hughes came out. They had big plans for Curtis Hughes. And that's why they brought in, one of the reasons why they brought in Harley Race to help teach this guy who seemed to have a lot of
1: potential, but it, it never really happened for him. No, it 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 didn't. He didn't have it. Yeah, he he didn't have what it took to, you know, we were talking about it earlier. Being a top guy, being looked at or viewed as a top guy, he didn't have it.
0: And supposedly there were some behavioral issues involved. Let's talk about the belt that was awarded, the physical <laughs> belt that was awarded
1: to Lex Luger. I, I I don't even know what to say. What can you say? I mean they. <laughs> I would have, I would have thought there would have been, you know, somebody somewhere that might have had a belt that would have been more presentable than putting a copper plate that says World Champion on top of a Florida title. But apparently they couldn't find anyone.
0: You know, I, I don't mean to keep going back to the Oz thing and all the money they spent on that. If I am WCW or running WCW and I have two or three weeks to get a belt manufactured made and delivered I would have figured something out I would have you know spoken to a belt maker and said look I don't care if you have to be up day and night doing this I need a belt for July 14th and I will compensate you quite well for it
1: and they had the money to do that and they they chose not to do
0: that I mean clearly you know we're, we're not prioritizing things here so yeah it was yeah. a good match and by far the best match on the show now we're wrapping up Rick Steiner and Pauly dangerously against, excuse me. I have this written down all wrong in my notes. Arn Anderson. It was and Pauly dangerously against Rick Steiner and Missy Hyatt in a cage. Now just so everyone has the backdrop, uh, Scott Steiner was out with a torn bicep, which is what happens when your biceps become g- as giant as Scott Steiner's. But that's, I have heard that is as a very painful injury. I put my notes and I, you know, as, as soon as I wrote this down, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like they should have pushed Ritz Steiner hard as a single during this time. And then like a minute after I write it, I'm like, oh yeah, he's a baby face. His 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 mm-hmm. push is gonna get messed up.
1: <laughs> that that whole thing was messed at the beginning. I don't know why they booked it that way. Uh, the Maryland State Athletic Commission had a, you know, you can't have a male and female competing in the mm-hmm. ring. No, it inter- was never going to happen, but they booked it anyway. I don't, you know,
0: I, I don't think they knew or I don't, I don't think they found out until it was too late. I mean, no inter- intergender wrestling in Maryland. And what cracked me up is, OK, here's how we're going to get out of this. Missy's going to be coming to the ring and the hardliners, Dick Murdoch and Dick Slater, just come and carry her away. Oh, my
1: God.
0: <laughs> I don't know where to begin for, for starters. They pushed this match hard on TV, and they absolutely did not deliver. And in my opinion, what they should have done—I mean, it, what they did looked like a total rip-off. And when the when the show started, they should have, in my opinion, they should have just said, "Look, we recently found out that there is a law in the books in Maryland saying that you know Missy Hyatt cannot wrestle Pauly dangerously." So we're pulling the match. We're very sorry. It's going to be Arn Anderson against Rick Steiner with Missy and Pauly in the corner.
1: That would have worked out a lot better because what it turned into, I mean, it it was I don't know if you caught it uh, when they kidnapped, quote, unquote, kidnapped Missy and Dick Murdoch had her on his shoulder. when he was going back. He was carrying her back. A fan took a swing at Murdoch. I did see that Murdoch pretty much almost dropped Missy on her head to take a swing back at the fan. That was the most amusing thing. I didn't catch that live. I didn't see that happen live, but that, that was a If you watch that, that was the most amusing thing in the whole pay-per-view when Dick, Dick Murdoch dropped a Missy to take a swing at a fan. I, I loved it.
0: I, I saw, I noticed that for the first time, two days ago when I watched this show, probably for the first time since 1991, and yeah, he he's like ready to drop Missy, and, and Jim yeah. Ross tries to cover up for it. He's like, "Oh, the fans yeah. are trying to protect Missy." Hyatt. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. They they did, and and that was the whole the whole point of the match. I mean, people wanted to see Missy, you know, beat up Paulie, and of course it didn't happen. You can't have the intergender wrestling, and that turned into a whole cluster. That whole thing there, and. Paulie ended up taking a pretty stiff clothesline from Steiner to pin him at the end of the match. That was about it.
0: Yeah. And at least you get to see Paulie get his, you know what, maybe yeah. they should have just booked it as Paulie and Arn against Rick Steiner and just said, Hey, you know, Missy, Missy will be in the corner, but the state athletic commission won't let her wrestle. You know, and like I said, the match was pushed so hard on TV and it just came across as a total ripoff. Uh, it, it looked bad. Now, and the best part, was in my opinion the best part was the hardliners come out, they grab Missy Hyatt, they take her to the back. Rick Steiner shows zero concern <laughs> for Missy Hyatt's he, safety.
1: He didn't care. <laughs> oh, bye, Missy. I'll see you soon. Yeah, have fun with those two guys. He he was happy to get her out of there. <laughs> it almost they, looked like he did. He was. They they should have run an angle a couple of weeks later where Missy was pregnant with the hardliners' baby and. <laughs> That that would have worked. I mean, hell, they were they were doing every other angle. Why not?
0: <laughs> it sounds like something right out of Vince, Vince Russo's <laughs> wheelhouse, <laughs> you know. And then, you, which one is the father? You know, right? Have a Maury show. Uh, <laughs> now, there's one other thing going on in this match. It's the last match on the show, and I'm there. I'm in the third row. I'm on the hard camera. I walk up to John Hitchcock, who has signs. I should have John on this show, by the way he has a giant we want flare sign and i walk up to him like, john please let me have that sign i'm on the hard cam i l- everyone will see it it'll be cool he gives me the sign i can see what they're broadcasting to my right they have the big screen with you know the television broadcast on it so i hold up the sign we want flair and it's it's easily viewable if you have peacock go see it. You'll see 26 year old me being a pain in the ass. <laughs> I had this giant sign and there, and the cameraman or, or the production crew like immediately, sh- you know, shifts off of me, but I can see what they're doing. And as soon as they get back to the picture on the hard cam, I put the sign right back up. It was a, a great game of cat and mouse. I'm so happy to be part of that history.
1: <laughs> you, and like you said, very, you can see it on the camera too. Yep. I um, <laughs> Play it back.
0: And it was the last match, and I knew it wasn't going to last long, and I didn't care if they kicked me out, but, like, no yeah. one ever even approached me. I, I have the feeling that if I had that sign early in the show, either it would have been confiscated or I would have been on the outside of the building looking in.
1: I, I don't think they would have kicked you out. I don't know, but I, I think they would have just taken it away from you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, You're probably right, yeah. but I I went all the way, flew from Manchester, New Hampshire to Baltimore, Maryland for the show. And I, I was not looking for an early exit. Believe me, no. that's a, that's a long trip. So, agree, Randy, yeah. What was now one thing too, I noticed they brought in Harley race. They already had too many managers, in my opinion, before race showed up, they had diamond Dallas page, sir, Oliver Humperdinck, uh, Teddy long, Kevin Sullivan, theoretically the wizard and now you're bringing in someone else. I I think it's overcrowded.
1: Yeah. And again, nobody, every, everything you take anything that could be wrong in a promotion. This is what was happening. Whatever could be wrong is wrong. Mm -hmm. Why not? And to me, I, I, Harley, Harley would have been a very, well, he was, he was a very credible manager, probably more credible than, Any of the other managers they had there. But um, yeah, again, you're throwing too much into the pot. They don't need another manager.
0: They didn't. And I mean, like I said, Harley had a great run in WCW, especially when they paired him with Vader. Like he, Harley had credibility left and right. He and Luger didn't mesh, but he and Vader totally meshed. They did. Randy, what was your relationship with this promotion after the show, I'll I'll tell you what mine was. I started traveling to NWA shows in 1986 and, you know, any, almost any time I wanted to see the NWA, I had to make a trip to Philadelphia, Baltimore, whatever. And, you know, 86, I went to Philadelphia, 87, I went to Baltimore, 88, I went to both Baltimore and Philadelphia, 89, both Baltimore and Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. 90, you know, same thing. I went to the Bash in Baltimore, and now 91, this is it. I'm not going anymore. Though Five years went by fast, but I was done. I was not traveling to see NWA wrestling anymore. What was your relationship like with the promotion after this night?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Prior to my relationship with the NWA kind of ended, I never felt the same way about it again. In November of 90, when Coronet and the Midnight's left, well, Coronet and Stan Lane left, you know, Bobby Eaton was still there. But when when Coronet was gone, I mean, it was never the same for that. After for me, never the same after that. After this show, though, I I don't recall. I, I think I might have went to one Philadelphia show non-televised that, yeah, after this one. That was it for me. I mean, I hadn't been to another show since uh, Halloween Havoc 90. Then I went to this one. I think I went to another show in Philly. I was done with the NWA. Never went back. I saw two more shows. I
0: saw a show in Worcester in 1992. It was the same night that uh, Duke and Kentucky played that legendary basketball game, the Chris Laettner game. So. I would have been more entertained just staying at home, and then I went to a WCW show. We talked about this last week in 1995 in Hartford, Connecticut, and I went because I was like I was wanted to see Ric Flair one last time, and of course Rick was around like more than 15 years later. But yeah, I kind of <laughs> gave up on them after this night as well.
1: Yeah, and they they weren't nowhere near what they were just two years prior. I mean, eighty eighty five. To 88 they were on top Of the world for me uh, There's nothing I wouldn't have done to go To an NWA show Between 85 and 88 And even 89 I mean You know the, the matches that Flair and Speedboat had in 89 it, it was still good but Going downhill 1990 everything fell apart Toward the end of the year And it didn't come back for a long time After that
0: No it didn't uh, for me it's 85 when they first went on Crockett until about spring 1990 when they started doing the RoboCop stuff that I, you know, (laughs) it wasn't just the RoboCop Uh, stuff, but the promotion just lost its way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they did. And like I said, for me, you know, the end of 1990 when, when Coronet, yeah, it, it was mainly because we, I mean, we can talk about it here. I mean, we knew we knew Jim Coronet and we, we knew the the backstory behind everything. And when that actually happened, when Coronet and Stan Lane were gone, it left a really bitter, I was really bitter toward the promotion because I heard his side of the story about the whole thing. And I, I never really went back to the NWA after that. I mean, the main reason I went to this show was, you know, you were going to be there. My friends were going to be there. We were going to have a good time, and we had a good time. Regardless of how poor that show was, we had a damn good time in Baltimore.
0: Yes, we did, and I absolutely had a good time. Before we get into that, we had a good time in 1990, November 1990, when we found out that Jim Cornette had you know, had quit the NWA. Uh, Jim Cornette yeah. and Stan Lane, I— happened to run into Brian Hildebrand and Jim Cornette and we're all on our way to Denny's. So why not eat together? And on our way, there was a Denny's that was walking distance between the hotel uh, from the hotel. And Cornette says he's quit the NWA. I'm like, what? All right. You know, yeah. maybe, you know how people quit sometimes and they come back. I mean, Cornette, right. he, he and the midnights left in 1989 and we're back four, five, six weeks later. So mm-hmm. I figured, okay, maybe it's just a spat. But no, and Jim was all night. He was livid at Oli Anderson. Oli's name I learned on this night was goddamn fucking Oli because that's what Jim Cornette called him every single time.
1: Yeah, it was an ugly time. To I, I didn't like anything about the NWA at that time. Hearing hearing everything we heard, no, I I there was no going back after that.
0: Uh, Cornette cracked me up. He's like, oh, here's what happened. Oli Anderson said, if I don't fucking like it, I can go home. So I listened to him. I went fucking home. Fuck him.
1: Yeah, him, him and Stan both went home. If you don't like it, go home. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was a fun weekend. But hey, <laughs> another fun weekend, Randy. Do you have anything you remember that you want to share with the stick to wrestling audience that that occurred during this weekend in Baltimore?
1: Uh <laughs> the uh the Paulie dangerously uh hotel party that we had afterward <laughs> yeah that that was it was a good night yeah um that kind of happened uh a little i i was talking to paul a little bit before the show and i told him i'm like you know after the show we're gonna be back up in in my room i'll make sure everybody's up there if you want to come up come on up and you know we all got together in my room an hour or two after the show goes by i'm like god damn paul ain't gonna show up I, I happened to go down, I'm I'm like, I'm going to go out for a minute. I went down the elevator to the lobby of the hotel and I happened to run into Paulie and Kevin Sullivan down there. And we all, you know, they got on the elevator. Paul said hi to me. Paul was talking to Kevin. Kevin got off the elevator. Uh, I forget what floor, but Paul and I actually had our rooms on the same floor. So after Kevin got up, yeah, Kevin got off the elevator. I said to Paul, you want to come up to my room? We got, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, I'll go in. Do you have your card with you? I'm like, yeah. So do you remember when you guys were in the room, how Paul took my card, opened the door and stormed into the room yelling, Hey, keep the effing noise down in here. (laughs) That was how you guys didn't know Paul was going to come, but, uh, I I didn't think he was going to come, but, as fate would have it, you know, I I ran into him. I told him to come up and he came, he came into the room and partied with us all night until about 5 a.m. Uh, I we
0: had no idea that there was a possibility that Paul was going to come in and like a hurricane does not even describe how Paul walks into this room <laughs> full of strangers. I mean, I met him briefly like three years later, so he doesn't remember me. And, yeah, all of a sudden the door pops open. He's like, get the fucking noise down in here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, it's probably Dangerously. <laughs> like...
1: Yep. That was...
0: Now, and do you I, remember I... what happened next?
1: Oh, well, we, we just uh, – I, I remember he, he sat down and, and we talked. I don't – if you clue me in on what you're talking about, I'm not sure if I'd remember it or not, but I remember yeah, I... a lot about that night.
0: I told a story three or four years ago on the 605, and Paul was not in the room for 30, uh, let's say 60 seconds. He wasn't in the room for 60 seconds. And someone asked him, hey, you know, why do you have, do you have real heat with Missy Hyatt? And he's like, yeah. And the guy goes, why? Stick to Wrestling Universe. There's going to be some bad language used right here. I'm going to tell you exactly what Paul said. (laughs) So if if you don't want to hear the language, like tune out for about a minute or two. He goes, no, I, I'll I'll I don't like Missy Hyde. I'll tell you why I don't like her. Number one, she's a cunt. <laughs> number two, she's a cunt. Number three, yes, I do remember. <laughs> I do remember what you're talking about. <laughs> and he just like going. He starts slow. He's like, number one, she's a cunt. Number two, she's a cunt. Number three, she's a cunt. And I'm I'm like. The guy hasn't been in the room for 120 seconds and he's doing this. This is
1: great. What a night. And you know what? I I can't even, I I remember you. I remember it was me, you Wade Keller. I'm pretty sure Scott Dickinson might've been in there too. I don't remember who all was in my room though, (laughs) other than me, you Wade Keller and Scott Dickinson and Paul Lee. Uh, John Krollman was there. Paul McGee was there. Uh, Okay. Jeff
0: Mullins was not there. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was at this show. I think that's pretty close to it. That's a lot of guys for a small hotel room.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: At the Omni? Yeah. <laughs> and I also remember they had one of those refrigerators where if you took food, you know, food or drinks out, you had to pay for it later. That. And oh I boy, Randy, the, you were a, a gracious host.
1: Well, here we go. Yeah. Paul. Paulie apparently was pretty thirsty and yeah they have a mini fridge and it's pretty well stocked too um at the Omni hotel which it, it isn't cheap and I I had no idea how not cheap it was but Paulie's like uh I'm going to take an orange juice you know they had the little cans of orange juice really little cans of orange juice in there I'm going to take one you know Paul took one out of there and Paul ended up drinking four of them okay Uh, I think it was that few. I think it was four. I think that's all they had. I think they had four cans in there. He drank all four of them. And at the end of the night, he, he gave me like three or $4. I think he's like, you know, here's for the orange juice. And somebody took a a candy bar. I think Wade Keller took a candy bar or a bag of M&Ms or something about a week, a week or two after I got home, I got a letter from the Omni hotel in Baltimore, Maryland, I opened it up, and uh, there's a bill in there for like twenty eight dollars. And here it was the <laughs> the orange juice; they were like five dollars each, and the bag of M and M's, and they put tax on top of that. And this was nineteen ninety one money. I, I was mm-hmm. probably only making about seven or eight dollars an hour at my job, and I'm like, God damn, Paul! And to this day, Paul never paid me the money back, but. Uh, from what I hear, Paul owed a lot of people money. So <laughs> yeah, your twenty-eight dollars doesn't ring. I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna let that go. But uh it was it was an honor having Paul and, and getting to talk with Paul that night, all of us. And I and think we'll agree with that.
0: He he has an amazing wrestling mind. He really does. You know, the way he laid things out, you know, just you know, here's how this works, here's how that works. It was really you know, just hanging out with the the master of wrestling. You know, one thing you could tell, and, you know, we've talked a lot about this, about, you know, Ric Flair left WCW 30 years ago. Paul did not like Rick, and he carried that into mm-hmm. his ECW thing. Like, he made it clear to us that he was no, that night, he was no fan of Ric Flair.
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. He made a lot of things clear that night. <laughs> and, yeah. One of them, he didn't like Missy Hyatt, He didn't like Ric Flair. And, uh, yeah, they, they, I learned so much that night, you know, to, I, I really wish I would have, you know, had a notebook and I wrote some of the, everything he, cause he, he basically talked the whole night and we listened to him talk for like four, four or five hours. He talked and yeah, it was great. I mean, we got, we got the inside knowledge there that very few people got at that time. And Paul wasn't afraid to speak his mind or share anything. Paul just didn't care because Paul was a fan. I mean, Paul was like you and I, he he was a regular fan in addition to being on the inside of everything.
0: And you know what? I, I think I really think Paulie had a good time that night because he was with people Who knew, and and, I I know this sounds very boastful, but he had an audience of people who knew what they were talking about, who it wasn't going to go over their heads. I know that sounds very stuck up, but it's
1: the truth. No, and Paul, yeah, Paul knew that we, Paul knew, I knew Paul, and Paul knew that everybody I hung out with, you don't kayfabe them. They know everything. They subscribe to the newsletters. They know Dave Meltzler. They know Wade Keller you know and i think he liked that he liked being around people that he could talk to about everything and in a way i think that was kind of like a therapy session for him because he vented so much shit to us about the company about you know his first run there about and he even talked uh, i mean i don't know if you picked up on it he he talked a lot about you know uh, Here's how it should have been done. This is what I would have done. And, you know, then and there you knew the guy, he, he would eventually have his own promotion one day. I figured he would have been,
0: oh, wait, he had already been Booker. He had been Booker briefly for uh, Savaldi's promotion, ICW, in 1990. And wow, suddenly that promotion got way better. And then after he left, it was just IWCCW again. I mean, he showed you that he had, he showed everyone that he had good ideas. And frankly, he should have been part of the creative process in WCW. But once again, you know, you're, you run into the Ric Flair wall.
1: Right. And even even before that, I mean, if you remember 1988, before he even came into the NWA, do you remember when he and Eddie Gilbert booked Continental? How much better that got, how how much, how an incredible improvement in that promotion when they booked it. Yeah.
0: Night and day.
1: I don't know how much of that was Paul and how much was Eddie, but together they, they were dynamite when they were booking that promotion. Now Eddie, and you're right,
0: it was night and day before Eddie came in. And then after Eddie left, Eddie was the booker in Continental, but. He lived with Paulie dangerously. They shared an apartment together, so you know Paulie mm-hmm. had some some kind of input.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, I mean, one thing I remember about the night he was talking about: number one, he was talking about Ric Flair and what Ric Flair was like in in booking meetings. And uh, by the way, everyone knows Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time. I'm not bagging on him, but no one's perfect. Paul was talking about how they'd be having a booking meeting. And Ric Flair would be sitting there like, hey, brother, I saw you with that uh, girl last night. Did you get any, brother? And Paulie's like, hey, we're supposed to be talking about wrestling here. And and Rick would just want to talk about his social life.
1: That's Ric Flair for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's time and place. Yeah. Another thing uh, that was, do you remember, Paul talked a lot about a a gimmick he gave a guy called the wrestling school dropout. I remember remember that. that. Yeah. Brilliant. Totally, bro. They, they had this guy who they didn't know what to do with. He he had no charisma. He had nothing. And, you know, Paul was like, what am I going to do with him? He's like a wrestling school dropout. And then a light bulb went off in Paul's head like, whoa, wait a minute. I can make that work. And if you I, I think I might have video of uh, the wrestling school dropout, but that was a brilliant gimmick. I mean, it wasn't around long, but that was a a brilliant gimmick that he came up with.
0: I actually have a couple of of details about this. Paul told the story that he was uh, booking IWCCW, and I think this kid kid was already in the company or was just starting out or something, and Paul just says, you know, I I don't have anything for you. I'm sorry. And -hmm. the guy kind of slumps his shoulders. He puts his head down. He goes, okay. And he starts to slowly walk away and the light bulb went off in Paul's head. Make him the wrestling school drop out. <laughs> there you go. That, that, brilliant. I mean, I love it. And, yeah, man, then, you know, then he's Paulie Dangerous. And mind you, by this point, it's like three, four in the morning. And he's talking about how he would put together a booking committee for WCW. That's what they needed. And he was insistent that they bring back Terry Funk and that they bring back Jim Cornette. And he's like, yeah, I can just picture being in the room with the two of them. And Jim Cornette is like, now here's what we're doing. Here's the finished movie. And Terry Funk's going, no, Jimmy, no, no. Paulie's way better at doing that than
1: I am. Like he was the imp- riot. The impersonations he did. I remember exactly what you're talking about. He would impersonate Cornette to a T. Then he would impersonate Terry Funk to a T and having them, it, it was like having Jim Cornette and Terry Funk in that room, arguing at a booking meeting <laughs> through, through the mouth of Paul Lee. it It was, it, I can't, I can't even describe it. Brilliant. Brilliant.
0: Tony Atlas's career was on its ass. And I mean, Tony was living, I, my understanding of it, he was living at a YMCA up in Portland, Maine. And, you know, he asked Paulie, you know, can you use me for a booking? And Paulie said, yeah. And Paulie went over with us how he reconstructed Tony Atlas in IWCCW and made him into a commodity. He'd be like, Tony, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk real slow into the camera and tell them what you're doing. Like when you put a guy over your head, you say, this is a move. I use all of my power with this is the, why I go to the gym every day. This is why I look like this. And he, he took Tony Atlas from this, you know, frankly, nothing against Tony, but this broken down former pro wrestler. And he made him into something that both the WWF and WCW now wanted. And it was the WWF who got him.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, he could do that. He, if you, if you listen to him, he, he truly is a brilliant mind. I mean, even to this day, I mean, I haven't talked to the guy in years now, but to this day, I he's he's a brilliant mind and he, you can't argue that. I mean, to this day he
0: is one of the best things on WWF television, WWE yep. television, excuse me. His pairing with Brock Lesnar was a brilliant one, not only, you know, 4 or 5 years ago, but uh 15 years ago and now he is with Roman Reigns and they are i mean it's just a phenomenal pairing yep. I, i've always thought he was a great manager on, and well being a great wrestling mind is part of that
1: yeah and he he has not lost anything i mean he's still sharp and he he changed with the times unlike a lot of people who over time they they want to stay in the mode they were in 15, 20 years ago, i.e. Jim Cornette. Not Mm. putting him down, I'm just saying. Jim Cornette didn't develop the way Paul Lee developed because Jim Cornette doesn't view the current product as something marketable the way Paul Lee views it. Two different points of view there. There's no right or wrong, but Paul Lee obviously can continue going and doing what he's doing now.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't help but be impressed by the guy. He has been in the business now well over 30 years. Uh, you know, and, and it, he makes it work for him. I remember watching an interview with him and someone said, you know, do you miss ECW? And he's like, no, I just don't think of it. I, I've, I've moved on. That was something I did in the 90s. And, you know, now I'm doing what I'm doing now.
1: And I think that's a, a really healthy way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he—he's a lifer in in the business. He's going to be a lifer. He'll be around. He'll have something to do with it until the day he's no longer with us. He'll never be out of the picture.
0: Um, you know what? I'm not. I mean, Paulie. He, He—he actually strikes me as, as a guy who could walk away if he wanted to. Absolutely. You know, he just, he's yeah. just not a a mindset where you know some guys. We talk about the Hotel California, where you can check out, but you can never leave. A lot of the Mm -hmm. wrestlers back in the day were like that. And, you know, Paulie never struck me as that kind of guy when he, you know, wasn't happy with his role in WCW and he couldn't get work in the WWF. He got, he he just became a nightclub manager. That's it. I Mm -hmm. don't need this wrestling business. And when he got the right offer, he came back.
1: Yeah. He, he'll always come back to it, it in my opinion anyway. I mean, he'll always come back to it because, he loves it. He He's a true fan. He was a true fan before he got involved in it. He'll always be a fan. He loves it. And I think he'll continue to do that.
0: Two other things I want to bring up from this weekend. I, I brought up Wade Keller and Eric Bischoff, you know, crossing paths, getting on and off an elevator. I'm in an elevator with the late, great Harry White. And I'll bet, you know, was Harry White there with Paulie? I don't think so.
1: No, no, Harry wasn't. Think-
0: no. All right, I didn't think he was there either. But he, he was on the trip with us. Now, I'm getting off the elevator with Harry White, who is Mister St. Louis, and getting on the elevator is Harley Race, and these two know each other. So Harry's like, "Wow, ha- wow, Harley, how are you doing?" And and Harley, with a great big smile, "Harry, how are you?" They shake hands, and we're once again like, "Wow, they're they're bringing in Harley Race. I wonder for what."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, that was the, the second weird elevator moment. And Mick Foley was there. He was at the arena and I got to say hi to him, but he was there just as a fan buying a ticket, uh, taking the trip from Long Island to
1: wherever he was living. Mick Foley was in like the, uh, the 10th row. Yeah. He he was in the middle of, you know, he he was pretty far back, but yeah, we all knew Mick Foley was there. We were talking to him before the show and uh, I don't know what happened to him after the show. I mean, he didn't hang around or anything, but uh, yeah, Mick Foley was there at the, 91 bash in the crowd. Same area I was in about 10 rows back, I think.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking he drove down for the show and then he drove home. I, I got to, I just ran into him in the the hallway at the uh, Baltimore civic center. And I got to say hi to him, but yeah, he probably drove home afterward, but I mean, that's, that's just so Mick Foley like, Oh, I'll just go buy a ticket and see the show. And a few months mm-hmm. later, not even a few months later, he's back wrestling for them and he's getting a big role. Yeah. I mean, he was managing Abdul the Butcher and he was wrestling Sting on TV and he was out there showing us that, hey, he's not just a just a random guy. He's, you know, a guy who can take sick bumps. He's, you know, he's a real talent in this business.
1: Yeah. And that's I never saw that coming with him. I kind of thought, you know, go what you just talked about. I kind of thought Mick Foley would be a flash in the pan kind of thing, you know. Like uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, like when he took that bump from Mill Masters on the Clash, that was his shining moment. And from that moment on, he'd go downhill, and you know, eventually not be with. I I thought Mick Foley would be done, and I had no idea he'd become what he became either. I didn't see that coming with Mick Foley.
0: I totally didn't. And you you know, right afterward, he has this run in WCW where. He shows that he's not a novelty act. That's the word I mm-hmm. was looking for. And one la- I mean, no, one last thing, two last things that I remember. Pauly came up to your room at right around midnight. we are hanging out, you know, watching mm-hmm. TV. And here comes Pauly. And at about 530, I say to everyone, guys, look, I'm sorry. I got to leave. I've got to shower and catch my plane. That's how mm-hmm. long we were, you know. Well, like, God knows how much longer we would have been in that room if I didn't say that. And that's when everyone said, all right, let's call yeah, it a night. Yeah, everybody,
1: everybody called it a night after that. The same thing with me, too. I, I actually had uh, I had a bus ride. Uh, I took a bus to Baltimore. Uh, I had to catch the bo- the morning bus from Baltimore, be back in Redding, Pennsylvania by 12 o'clock. I think the bus was getting there at 1130 and catch a cab from the bus terminal to my job. I... I had a half day vacation that Monday morning and I had to work Monday afternoon. And yeah, same thing. We had to call in night. Uh,
0: so did you, did you, you go to work with no sleep, right? Or whatever sleep yeah, you got on no, the bus?
1: No, I, I don't think I slept on the bus. You, you can't really sleep on a, on a bus. <laughs> not, you know, not from Baltimore anyway. That was, uh, you know, you wake up without your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> No, I didn't sleep on the bus at all. But back then, you know, I was a 22, 23-year-old kid. I could do that. I could go a day or two without sleep. It didn't bother me.
0: No, I had the next day off, and I was lucky enough to, you know, I flew up to Manchester. A friend of mine gave me a ride back. Home, so I didn't have to drive or anything. Thankfully, because I'd been up for like 28 hours, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. when I got home, I got to go to sleep. So that I I, I thought I was a hero for staying up 28 hours, but you you did the same thing and you just
1: went to work. Yeah, I went to work for you know from 12 o'clock to 5 o'clock, and I'm pretty sure I went to bed about you know 7:30 that night. But it was a great weekend. I mean, we we had a great weekend. Now. This will be the
0: last thing. Do you remember did you go on on the boat with us in Baltimore Harbor? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I went on the boat. So, do you remember the Shenanigans
1: I pulled with Jeff Mullins? Again, if you if you mention them I might remember, but I I remember the boat ride. I don't remember anything that spits out in my mind about it though.
0: All right. Jeff Mullins, I mean, he came and and went very quickly in our little clique. He was in our little clique for less Mm -hmm. than a year. He put out a newsletter that was actually very funny. I don't remember the name of it, but he was a really good guy. And he was a little bit older than me. I would say I was 26. I want to say he was like mid 40s, maybe late 40s. And he comes up to me and he's like, let's play a prank on these guys. when We're on the boat. Let's let's actually we're not getting along. And we're going to make everyone really uncomfortable. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. I'll do that every day. Right. So we get on the boat and we start bickering about stuff and we made it look real. Like we were not getting along and we're ruining everyone's day with our bickering (laughs) nonsense. And finally, Jeff comes up to me like very quietly. He's like, we've got to knock this off. We're ruining everyone's boat ride. (laughs) I'm like, all right, well, we got to go out with a, with a bang. So I. I made fun of his hat. He was wearing a baseball cap, and I said something nasty about his baseball cap. And he goes, you go through life wearing a douchebag hat, which I thought was a (laughs) great line. And instead of laughing, I go up and I pull his, his baseball cap over his eyes. Now it's getting physical. So I don't know if you were part of it. Ron Lemieux and Harry White, like, get between us. And we start laughing. And Ron, who has been on on the show before and will be on again, he gets pissed. He's like, I knew it. I knew you two were capable of doing this. And yes, we were. So that was another highlight of our weekend, you know, making sure our friends are not having a good time on a boat in Baltimore Harbor.
1: That. I, I don't recall. I remember the boat. I don't recall that, though. But uh, that's definitely something that I could see you doing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And with that compliment, I am going to wrap up this week's Stick to Wrestling. Randy, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on I,
1: Reliving the Good Times. One one more thing I wanted to mention before we go, uh, sure. real quick. Uh, you mentioned about guys not being in our clique too long. I mentioned I had a front row seat at that show. Uh, There was a guy out there named Bruce Genovan. I don't know if you remember him. I have no idea what happened to him, but somehow or another, Bruce ended up landing me this front row ticket, and I barely knew the guy. I knew him through tape trading, and he actually got me the ticket. Bruce Genovan, if you're out there, I have not forgotten you. I've looked for you on social media. I have no idea where you are, but thank you. Bruce Genovan is the one who got me the ticket for the front row of that pay-per-view. Thank you. Well,
0: Randy is viewable <laughs> on on Peacock, and and so am I. And Bruce Genovan, I, I'm afraid I don't remember him, but sorry about that. But, yeah, Randy, it, it's been a great show reliving our our fun times for, from 30 years ago, and thank you for sharing.
1: Anytime, anytime. We had a, always have a great time talking
0: to you. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, that was the last, yeah, that was the last time I saw you live and in person, but we can keep the relationship going through the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Uh, yeah, that was that was fun, I want to thank our producer as always Lou Kippelman for all the great work that he does, and I want to thank all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.
1: This concludes our podcast day.